0: The Old Pilots' Plane Tales The Applegate Memorandum but the DC-10 was McDonnell Douglas's first commercial airliner project since the merger between McDonnell Aircraft Corporation and the Douglas Aircraft Company in 1967. It started life on the drawing boards as a four-engined, double-decked, wide-body airliner that could carry 550 passengers, but morphed into a single-deck, three-engined aircraft that could carry one passenger short of 400. In what was expected to be a knockout blow to the competing Lockheed L-1011, the President of American Airlines and James McDonnell, of McDonnell Douglas announced American Airlines' intention to acquire the DC-10. With significant orders from American, United, and from other airlines around the world, its future looked good. The DC-10 featured advanced avionics, optimized aerodynamics, and delivered superior comfort for passengers and crews. Our operational capabilities filled an important niche, and in many ways the DC-10 revolutionized the airline flying model. The aircraft could operate routes never thought of as workable and reach destinations previously considered financially impractical. The developers of the DC-10 crafted its design to meet the demands of the industry and its capabilities were never questioned. It was praised by pilots for its light handling and state-of-the-art guidance systems, and its engineers appreciated its ease of maintenance. Regulations of the time prevented twin-engined aircraft from crossing the big oceans, but efficient trijets could compete, particularly on those routes that didn't have the capacity to warrant a gas-guzzling 747. In a huge fanfare of publicity, the DC-10 first flew in late 1970, but even as the aviation press was greeting this new widebody onto the stage, an engineer, Dan Applegate, had grave concerns. Dan didn't work for McDonnell Douglas, but for Convair, a division of General Dynamics, one of the subcontractors bought aboard to aid in the design and construction of this mighty jet. He was Convair's Director of Product Engineering, and his concerns centred around the design of the cargo doors and the construction of the cabin floor that was the base of the passenger cabin and therefore the roof of the cargo compartments. The DC-10 had been designed with cargo doors that opened outwards, as inward opening doors, although inherently safer, required some unusable space within the hold to accommodate the door. As a result, the need for a fail-safe design of locking pins to secure the door was vital. The doors originally had hydraulic actuators to secure these pins, a proven design used in both DC-8 and DC-9, but McDonnell Douglas decided to use electric actuators, which gave a 28-pound, 12.7-kilo, weight-saving per door. The change concerned the Convair engineers since the hydraulic actuators would behave differently as cabin pressure built up behind the door. If a hydraulic latch wasn't secured properly, it would smoothly slide open with only a small increase of cabin pressure. Although an open door in flight might well rip off, this would occur at a low altitude and without a large decompression shock, allowing a safe landing. In contrast, if the proposed electric latch failed to engage properly, it could fail violently and most likely at a higher altitude where a rapid decompression could dangerously affect the aircraft's structure. Applegate's objections to the new door latch were rebuffed, but Convair was asked to draft a failure mode and effect analysis, a FEMA, for the cargo doors. The FEMA concluded that there were nine possible failure sequences that could result in the destruction of the aircraft. There was a major problem with the door warning and locking pin system in that it could close and latch without being safely locked. The conclusion was that the door design was potentially dangerous and lacked a reliable fail-safe locking system. FAA regulations required it to be given FEMAs covering all systems critical to safety, but no mention was made of the door hazard prior to the certification of the DC-10. McDonnell Douglas subsequently stated that the door design was not implemented until all defects in the FEMA were removed. As the lead designer, McDonnell Douglas made itself entirely responsible for the certification of the aircraft and they forbade Convair from reporting directly to the FAA. Then, in May 1970, during a model test run, the DC-10 blew its forward cargo door, causing the aircraft's cabin floor to collapse – This was a potential disaster as the cabin floor contained conduits which carried vital electric and hydraulic systems up and down the length of the fuselage. McDonnell Douglas placed the blame on human failure, stating that the mechanic failed to correctly seal the door. The cure was to make design changes to enable better checks on the door locking pins. The FAA is charged with overseeing commercial products and regulating them in the public interest, but this is not often done independently. They appoint Designated Engineering Representatives, DERs, to make inspections for them. These are company employees chosen for their experience and integrity who have the dual obligations of loyalty to their company and faithful performance of inspections. The manufacturers are therefore policing themselves and it is generally acknowledged that conflicts of interest can arise. A number of internal memos were written citing design problems with the cargo doors and the new structural changes proposed. However, McDonnell Douglas and Convair quarrelled about who was at fault and the cost of changes, which resulted in none of them being implemented and the aircraft went into service. Then came American Airlines Flight 96. The DC-10 was en route between Detroit and Buffalo when, above the city of Windsor in Ontario, whilst climbing through 11,750 feet, the flight crew heard a distinct thud and dirt and debris flew up from the cockpit floor into their faces. The aircraft depressurized, and at the same time the rudder pedals deflected full right whilst the throttles moved to idle. Captain Bryce McCormick immediately took control and attempted to reapply power, but only the wing engines, numbers 1 and 3, would respond. The number 2 engine had failed. Other control problems presented themselves. They only had control of the right elevator, and that was restricted, but they could still use their ailerons and move the horizontal stabilator. They diverted their crippled aircraft back to Detroit, but when they configured the flaps, their rate of descent was far too high to land safely. Increasing speed allowed a more normal approach, but on touchdown, the DC-10 veered right and left the runway. First Officer Whitney did an excellent job by applying full thrust reverse on the left engine and idle thrust to the right which straightened the machine up and returned it to the landing strip. They stopped only 880 feet from the end of the runway. On inspection it was obvious that the rear cargo door had detached from the aircraft. Three months earlier, handlers had reported that the same door had not latched electrically and had to be closed manually. Three other operators had reported similar failures, and McDonnell Douglas issued a service bulletin to upgrade the latch wiring, but it wasn't compulsory and hadn't been performed on this aircraft. On the flight in question, the cargo loader closed the door electrically and when the motors stopped whirring, he tried to operate the locking handle but found it difficult to close without putting his knee on it. The door looked slightly ajar but with the locking handle in place and the cockpit warning light extinguished, the engineer permitted the aircraft to fly. The investigation showed that the latches had failed to close because the wiring couldn't carry the required load to the electric motors. In addition, the locking pin system was too weak, allowing the handle to be forced closed with the locking pins out of their locking holes. In addition, the vents that allow pressure to escape safely around the cabin floor into the cargo area during a decompression were inadequate, which is why the floor partially collapsed, leading to the engine and control failures. The NTSB recommended changes to the door locking mechanism and vents for the rear cabin floor. However... The FAA failed to issue an airworthiness directive, instead of which they reached what has been termed as a gentleman's agreement with McDonnell Douglas to make changes to the door design. The FAA administrator had taken the unusual action of becoming personally involved in the problem, thereby short-circuiting the AD issuance. He had spoken with the President of the Douglas Division of McDonnell Douglas and the two men had agreed that the situation didn't require a far-reaching AD since they had a great working relationship. The FAA agreed with McDonnell Douglas that additional venting would be difficult to install and they only modified the locking system of the door by adding a small clear window to the bottom of the cargo door to allow a visual inspection of the locking pins. It was at this point that Dan Applegate wrote a comprehensive memorandum laying out the problems with the door and the cabin floor designs and making his concerns clear. In particular, he noted that the actuator system had been switched from a hydraulic system to an electric one, which he felt was less safe. He noted that the floor would be prone to failure if the door was lost, and this would likely sever the control cables, leading to a loss of the aircraft. Finally, he pointed out that this precise failure had already occurred in ground testing in 1970. He concluded by saying, The potential for long-term conveyor liability has been causing me increasing concern for several reasons. The fundamental safety of the cargo door latching system has been progressively degraded since the program began in 1968, The airplane demonstrated an inherent susceptibility to catastrophic failure when exposed to explosive decompression of the cargo compartments in 1970 ground tests. Since Murphy's Law being what it is, cargo doors will come open sometime during the 20-plus years of use ahead for the DC-10. I would expect this to usually result in the loss of the aircraft. The Applegate Memorandum got as far as his immediate supervisor, but no further. Management believed that his proposed changes would be costly to implement, and there was a debate as to who would end up paying for them, Convair or McDonnell Douglas. In addition, Applegate's contract prevented him from sending his memorandum directly to the FAA. However... It didn't take 20 years for Dan Applegate's concerns to be realised. Only two. On the 3rd of March 1974, Turkish Airlines Flight 981 was climbing out of Paris-Orly Airport, an intermediate stop on its flight from Istanbul to London Heathrow. The aircraft was passing 12,000 feet when the rear cargo door burst open and was torn from its hinges, falling away from the airliner. The sudden difference in pressure between the cargo hold, now open to atmosphere, and the cabin above was about 5 psi, point three four of a bar, which caused part of the cabin floor to collapse, separate, and be forcibly ejected through the now open hatch. Along with the floor went six occupied passenger seats attached to that section of the floor. The fully recognisable bodies of the six Japanese passengers who were ejected were eventually found in a turnip field, having fallen over two miles to reach the earth. The loss of flight controls that the Turkish flight crew had to deal with was considerably more severe than in the American Airlines incident. When the door blew off, the primary as well as both sets of backup control cables that ran through that section of floor were completely severed, destroying the pilot's ability to control the DC 10. The aircraft almost immediately attained a 20-degree pitch-down and began to rapidly accelerate whilst the crew struggled to regain control. At some point, one of the crew members pressed their radio transmit switch, broadcasting the panic in the cockpit as they fought to raise the aircraft's nose. It took 77 seconds for the flight to terminate, when the airliner ploughed into a forest at high speed, killing all the remaining passengers and crew on board. The aircraft disintegrated into thousands of pieces, and of the 346 souls on board, only 188 were identifiable, with rescue teams having the grisly task of recovering some 20,000 body fragments. It was, at the time, the worst single aircraft disaster in aviation history. The Flight 981 aircraft had been ordered from McDonnell Douglas three months after the service bulletin to alter the cargo door was issued and was delivered to Turkish Airlines three months later. Despite this, the changes required by the Service Bulletin preventing the bending of the linkage seen in the Flight 96 incident had not been implemented. Through either oversight or deliberate fraud, the manufacture construction logs showed that this work had been carried out. In addition, an improper adjustment had later been made to the locking pin mechanism. It had been filed down reducing the locking pin travel. This meant that the pins did not extend past the torque tube flanges. After Flight 96, the design changes included the small window that allowed baggage handlers to visually inspect the pins to confirm that they were in the correct position. In addition, there were information placards to show the correct and incorrect positions of the pins. This modification had been applied to Flight 981's aircraft. However, the cargo handler had not been instructed about the purpose of the indicator window. Furthermore, the instructions on the door regarding the indicator window were printed in English and Turkish. But the Algerian-born handler, who was fluent in three other languages, could read neither of these. McDonnell Douglas subsequently faced multiple lawsuits for the crash of Flight 981 by the families of the victims and others. In its defence, during pre-trial proceedings, McDonnell Douglas attempted to blame the FAA for not issuing an airworthiness directive, Turkish Airlines for modification of the cargo door locking pins, and General Dynamics for an incorrect cargo door design. When it became clear that its defences were unlikely to prevent a finding of liability, McDonnell Douglas, Turkish Airlines and other associated parties settled out of court for an estimated $100 million, the equivalent of more than half a billion dollars in today's money. After the crash of Flight 981, the latching system was completely redesigned to prevent it from moving into the wrong position. The locking system was mechanically upgraded to stop the handle from being forced into the closed position and the FAA ordered further changes to all aircraft with outward opening doors, including the Lockheed L-1011 and Boeing 747. These changes also required vents to be cut into the cabin floor to allow pressures to equalise in the event of a blown-out door, thus preventing a catastrophic collapse of the aircraft's cabin floor and other structures that could damage an aircraft's vital systems. Plain Tales is a featured segment of the Airline Pilot Guy show. You can find out all about that at airlinepilotguy.com. Plane Tales is also its own podcast, and if you're enjoying listening, then why not leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or your podcatcher of choice. Many thanks, and thanks for listening.